You're listening to the Industry Alchemist Podcast. The definition of alchemy is a seemingly magical process of transformation or creation. This podcast exists to hear the stories of entrepreneurs, business owners, and leaders doing just that in their industry. We hear about the journey of the brave souls carving a new path, moving their industry and our lives forward in a seemingly magical way. I'm your host, Matt Brower, co-founder and managing broker of Column Commercial Partners, helping companies save money on their real estate. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Industry Alchemist podcast. I'm your host, Matt Brower. I'm sure most of us have heard that the survival of honeybees has a direct impact and correlation to the survival of the human race. And I've actually seen a couple documentaries about that. It's a very intriguing topic for me. Uh, Well, in this episode, we're going to hear the story of someone that has built a technology to help increase the survival rate of honeybees. Kimberly Drennan is CEO of Hive Tech Solutions, which began in early 2017. Prior to that, and actually still today, she's been teaching environmental design at CU Boulder. An architect by trade, she saw an opportunity to combine her expertise in the built environment with her business partner, Dr. Chelsea Cook's expertise in honeybee biology to make a positive impact in this critically important industry. Hive Tech Solutions offers a comprehensive healthcare system for honeybees, combining their expertise in design, engineering, biology, and technology they have developed and deployed a mobile apiary and network of smart beehives to improve honeybee health. And I have researched uh, a little bit about this on your website and haven't seen the inside of what one looks like, uh, just seen the kind of the black and white, black and yellow tarps. Uh, But I'm really excited to learn more about what you guys have created. So I appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Matt. Yeah. So uh, when we spoke on the phone, you told me, I thought it was just a very cool way that you and uh, Dr. Cook have, you know, had come together. Can you highlight that again for the listeners? Oh, yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite stories uh, because it was a start of something that's just like blossomed over many years. Uh, I, as you mentioned, I teach um, environmental design over at CU Boulder. And part of what I do is create problems for students to solve. And one of the problems that I looked into was that of the sort of built environment that honeybees live at. So inside the hive, what happens there? It's this sort of mysterious condition. But we've created, humans have created these little boxes for them to live in, little houses. Yeah. So I came across a bunch of these houses that were um, Dr. Cook's. She was studying thermoregulation in honeybee hives. Like, how do they heat and cool the inside of those boxes? And just like buildings, I, I automatically thought of buildings like air conditioning, heating, ventilation. How do we keep ourselves healthy inside of those? Right. How do humans build their hives? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And then you correlate that, which is what you're trained in, and you correlated that to how the bees actually do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Chelsea kind of opened up a whole new world of this super organism's ability to to maintain it themselves. So they are their own HVAC system. Wow. Yeah. So you took that, um, you learned about that topic. You, You learned how bees do that. Um, and correlated it back or vice versa? Or you implemented, with your technology, you implemented what we humans do to what you could build for the bees? Yeah, a little bit of both. And it was, it was kind of a growing process along the way. So we started out trying to understand what those conditions were on the inside. So we did a lot of sensor work and a lot of correlations between temperature and 
how the colony was um, growing and surviving, and especially over winter. There were these really big impacts that changes in temperature had on population and their survival into spring. Mm. So um, what we started looking into more seriously was the overall environment, climate change, and then some very specific stressors on honeybees, like the varroa mite. So varroa mites, yeah, they're these nasty parasitic mites okay. that get into the honeybee colony and really they are vectors for disease huh. and they weaken the colony. They introduce a lot of um, compromises to the honeybee's sort of global health and immunity. Yeah. Yeah, so we wanted to take a look at those two elements to see if could we change the hive and the environment that they're in every day and have an impact on their survival rates. Very cool. Yeah, so one of the first things we did was to look at when honeybees were dying off mostly. So beekeepers, I mean, they're struggling right now. 40% um, yeah. of our commercial colonies die every year. And beekeepers. Every single year, 40% yeah, of colonies. 40% on average, right? So some more, some less. And is, that's due to disease from these parasites and climate or uh, other things as well? Yeah, there's a lot of stressors. And so, you know, you've probably heard of colony collapse that happened back in the 90s. And then, you know, there's, there's been struggles ever since related to honeybee health, both through disease and some of the things that honeybees have to do. They have to get on trucks and they have to travel thousands of miles to pollinate our crops because mm. our agriculture system is essentially a monocropped environment. They've, rather than having, you know, forage for honeybees year round, yep. um, we have to take honeybees now to these monocropped landscapes so that we can have industrial scale agriculture. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not happening naturally as often because these large scale, I've seen, uh, I can't remember what, uh, what I was watching, but it was specific to almond trees. There you go, yeah, right yeah. now in fact. So honeybees are, at this time of year, probably finishing up or still out in the almond orchards right now. So they come in and some, somewhere on that order of like 2.8 million colonies travel yeah. just to pollinate our almonds um, this time of year. Yeah, which is, and that's the correlation between how uh, the survival of the honeybee is a direct uh, impact on the survival of us if the bees are not... Uh, pollinating our crops and our things we consume, then we don't have things to consume. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. They're this, um, we, we like to call them a keystone species in our food system. Yeah. Because without that keystone, things start to fall apart. Right. Wow. So is there, uh, so 40% per year, is, does it have anything to do with where they are on the globe? Like where, the, where are the highest rates of survival versus the lowest? Well, there is, there's a lot of difference uh, all across the globe. Um, you know, there are places where they do a little bit better, places where they do a lot worse. Mm. Um, here in the U.S., because they, they migrate from southern latitudes up to northern latitudes, there's a lot of different microclimates that they've got to deal with. Yeah. Right? So they have to adjust being in Texas versus being up in the Dakotas and then out in California. Yeah. So there's just a lot of stressors, and uh, we ask a lot of this pollination workforce to do for us, yeah. right? And so um, if there's a way to stabilize or eliminate some of these stressors, that's, I think, where we come in. Mm -hmm. We look at, okay, you know, what is the winter conditions? And when we talk about climate change, winter's changing, right? Yeah. So winter that we have now is not the same winter we had even 10 years ago. Right. 
and there are some asynchronicities that are happening between plants because you know maybe they have environmental cues related to daylight. Bees are very uh, cued into temperature changes. So when it's say over 50 degrees, bees are out foraging, right? They're out okay. looking for forage and flowers, but you know this in the falls when we have these extended falls, we don't have plant forage to back that up. So mm -hmm. essentially they're going out, they're spreading more disease, more mites, and they're burning up a lot of their resources. And when I say resources, I'm talking a lot about the honey that they've created over the course of the year, yeah. some of the pollen, and then they're out spreading disease through um, the sort of the density of hives around mites. Oh, geez. Yeah. So they'll actually get, um, consume these mites or have them on their body and then they transfer them to... Other yeah, hives. mites are kind of kind of fascinating creatures. They're doing really well with climate change, huh. right? Climate yeah. change doesn't affect things equally. So yeah. what the varroa mite has learned to do, they've, they've evolved. So what we're talking about are these evolutionary changes in organisms. The varroa mite has evolved to become a migratory pest, meaning that it didn't always, it wasn't always able to hop from colony to colony. But over, over the course of this, you know, these last 10, 15 years, they've been able to do that. Yeah. And now that bees are out foraging longer, they have a longer window to do that. And so they, they spike in their population numbers. They go inside the hives and they actually come out on the babies. So they go into the cells and they're actually in the honeycomb cells and they emerge. So right from the get-go, these, these honeybees are struggling to, with mites at the outset. From the, yeah, from the moment they come out of the cocoon or whatever, whatever that That's is. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they, they go right into the honeybee cells and wow. they, they go into where the brood or the baby bees are. Yep. Yeah. Jeez. So our, our philosophy was let's see how much we can prevent. So let's look at when do the mites grow in their population and well, what if we took bees out of the environment earlier when they were used to coming out, right? Mm. So we recreate this, this winter environment that they've evolved to use. They use winter... I mean, in fact, that's why we have honey. It's because honeybees have evolved to, to create honey so that they can go somewhat dormant during the winter and live within inside the hive based on the things they've stored. Okay, so they would survive, normally they'd survive off of the honey that they've created? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so they're a, they're a European honey breed that um, they're used to, you know, hunkering down in the winter reducing their mite loads, their populations, you know, decreases a bit, they slow things down, and they yep. emerge in the spring when plants are blooming again. Yeah, yeah. So our philosophy was pretty simple. Let's recreate that experience for honeybees, remove them from the stressful environment, and see how they do. And our first proof of concept test was really pretty cool. We had 72% higher survival rate by just, you know, giving them winter again. Mm-hmm. You're kidding me. It's that much of a positive impact. Yeah. So that's what your uh, box, and for the listeners, we're going to put a link to your website, but it's hivetechsolutions.com, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, H-I-V-E-T-E-C-H solutions.com. Yeah. Um, there's a photo of the box. What's the, the dimensions look like, what, 10 by? Well, yeah, we have a couple, and maybe um, in the next week or two, we'll add some more, but we've got several sizes of these boxes. Okay. The one that we're going into to full production on is... Is smaller. It's about the size of eight and a half by 14 feet long by about eight feet tall. Yeah. So kind of like those pods units that you see traveling down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a perfect uh, visual of like what, what the size is. Um, 
where would somebody, well, first of all, who are you, um, who's your ideal customer to have one of these? Obviously a beekeeper, but like, you know, how, how large of a hive would they have to have? Uh, who would want to get involved in having one of these devices to Yeah. Um, yeah, know, so looking at, at, at the beekeeping market, it's really fascinating. They're incredibly industrious um, participants at all scales, from the hobbyist to the small commercial to the really large commercial folks. And the, the folks that we are looking at as a go-to-market customer are the small commercial beekeepers. Mm -hmm. A couple reasons for that um, would be that, that they'll see a really high return on their investment quickly, they're experiencing some of the bigger loss rates. And they're more oftentimes the local beekeepers yep. that support local agriculture. So our units are designed to give them between 48 and 96 colony capacity mm. so that uh, they can they can put in at a yard level. So they've a lot of times small commercial beekeepers will have honeybee yards. Well, they'll store 24, 48 in one location. So the idea would be that they can go ahead and put a, a series of hives into MICA. And what's fun about it is because they are going dormant and because they are in a contained, controlled, safe place, mm. they don't have to have winter management. So you don't have to go out and check your hives every couple of weeks. You don't have to do additional feeding, especially in days like this where we've got a really high temperature spike and then we're going to get hit with really low temperatures. Right. It, it keeps it at a constant level. So your bees aren't experiencing these extreme conditions. Right, yeah. It's, May, it's March 1st and it's almost 70 degrees and not a cloud in the sky right yeah. now. Yeah. And like last week it was zero. <laughs> so the bees might come out and go, oh, it's time. Oh, uh -huh. wait. It's Never mind. <laughs> 10 below next week and yeah, we're going to get dumped out again. Yeah. Yeah. It's Denver for you. <laughs> Um, the cool thing about this or how this impacts, like, I just think uh, most of the listeners of this podcast are the Denver business community, national business community, and even some international listeners, um, whether or not people know, uh, uh, there are a lot of like the downtown high rise buildings, the office buildings in the tech center, um, they have beehives on the roofs of these buildings now. And this yeah. is new within the last two, three, four years. Um, I think this started with uh, uh, the farm-to-table restaurateurs that are in town mm -hmm. who have their own farms and they have a farm-to-table function of their restaurant. Uh, Urban Farmer is a perfect example. I learned a few years ago that the owner of Urban Farmer downtown, they have a farm, well, they have a beehive or I don't know how many on the roof of that building downtown. And uh, now it has become part of lead certification, and you probably you know the terminology better than I would uh, in terms of like the credits you can get to have beehives on your roof. But I love seeing that this has now become a part of real estate development and uh, sustainability practices. Yeah, it's been yeah. pretty amazing to watch um, urban real estate start to embrace these kinds of like bringing nature back into the to yep. urban areas. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and by the way, I'll have to uh, remind me, I'll have to get you connected with Stryker Lewis on my team, who's, uh, you know, he's a leader in the sustainability, uh, sustainable built environment. He's passion for it. Yeah, he's newer in the business and he's uh, has a has a um, blog and he's building a, quite a community around that. So oh, I'll have to yeah, check he's, that out. He's going like to yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's uh, going to be very intrigued by what you're building, too. So um, side note. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> um, okay, so you're, uh, so somebody who has no less than, how, how many hives would you say? It would probably be between 24 and um, 96 colonies would okay. be a perfect, um, for one of our first micas. Okay, yeah. Um, all the way up to, like what's, is this solution too, is there anyone too big for this solution? in terms of if they have, and I don't know the industry at all, so, um, you know, educate me a little bit on, uh, are there any uh, beekeepers or anything that are too large for your solution that you can't quite accommodate yet? Well, the way this scales is that it's, it's modular in the way we've approached it and approached the design. So both the, the shell of the equipment and all of that can scale up. Um, we're starting with just a small unit, and right now there's not anyone too large. Mm -hmm we can always accommodate more pods and kind of grow the system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, right now, I think um, one of the areas that we're looking into is a lot of the data products that can come along with this. Yeah. So our hope is that as we start to build out, you know, hardware as a service and do a lot more data capture, that our data product that will ultimately come out of this will serve more of the large commercial market. Okay. Wow. Um, so where are you... You started this in 2017. Yeah. I'm sure there was several, I don't know, several years of R&D and that <laughs> yes. continues. You have a product now that's marketable and you have customers. Um, you just got some funding, I believe. Well, we've, we've gotten some amazing support, yep. both from USDA, the SBIR, yep. and then from the state of Colorado, the OEDIT. Um, they have a wonderful grant program and we've gotten some support just recently from state of Colorado. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, and you're, uh, uh, which is how we originally got connected. You're, you know, needing to grow your yeah. operation and <laughs> manufacturing and R and D. Or that's uh, right. So okay. we're we're looking for real estate. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and you you had reached out on a listing that we have, and I just was so intrigued by your company that I had reached out and asked. You've got to tell this story on my <laughs> podcast. So I love that. Um, so where are you guys going with this? What is, uh, what's your vision in five years? Um, obviously, the larger you can grow, the more impact you can have, uh, which is what's driving all of this, I'm sure. Are there any kind of um, growth projections, any goals that you guys have set to you know, try to achieve we with have. regard to that? Yeah, we are, we're very much a mission-driven company, and we almost make make our projections on how many bees are we you know, saving as we're moving yeah. through this journey. Um, in terms of the business language of it, we'd like to scale quickly uh, into the large commercial market with uh, a pollination-specific product. Yeah. Right, so we're, we're perfecting some of the technical details now, growing our, our base in the small commercial world. But in five years, we see ourselves being just the normal condition for pollination mm -hmm. so that we there would be an overwintering component it would be out in the orchards we would be able to one, one cool thing about the data and the research piece is we've been able to come up with some algorithms directly about hive survival and being able to predict the health of a colony yeah. from October what it'll look like in January or February when you're collecting that much data, have that many data points, you can make predictions like that. Right. Even yeah. just with some of the limited models that we've had from our earlier work, we've had some pretty good accuracy with predictive modeling. Yeah. And so we see that as being such a great tool 
not just for the beekeepers, but for growers. Right now, there's a rental market out there for growers. Hmm. You know, um, it's kind of interesting that you've got a brokerage component to renting hives, renting hives for a period of time. That's right. That makes total sense. Yeah. Because hey, I'm, I need uh, this to be, you know, this my crops to be fertilized, you know, uh, uh, pollinated during this time of year, and we're gonna, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So right now, there's That's a wild. there's a fairly active brokerage market. And um, we see the ability to impact that area with our data, yeah. with our pricing, and with our product. So looking five years down the road, we see just a, a transformation in the way pollination happens. We see a transformation in how honeybees are cared for, and then how the relationship between growing and beekeeping can evolve. Yep. It becomes part of what you do as a beekeeper to have uh, mica, is what you yeah, to right. have mica as part of your operation. Yeah, that's what your it just becomes is. part of, of how this system works. Yeah. So I mean, you could say that there's a disruption to it, but actually, we see it as just an evolution. You're right. This is just a, another tool that now ha gives you the capabilities to plan in advance, to grow your inventory, and to have some price stability. Yeah. You know, this right now, hive rentals every year there's just an escalation in them and, and growers are, are having the same kinds of headaches as beekeepers are. Where are the bees? Where can we get them? Who has good bees? How healthy are they gonna be? Because that impacts- Yeah, after the trip. Yeah. Directly how much, how much their almond crop's going to be productive. Yep. Yeah. Um, are, how many beekeepers, let's, let's say in Colorado, how, many, how large is this market? How many beekeepers uh, are there in this yeah. market so nationally. Colorado doesn't have the largest amount of beekeepers. They've got some really awesome beekeepers that are um, in areas, you, you know, about melons and squashes and areas that have productive fruits. We've met some really interesting organic farmers as well. So one thing that I see really fascinating about Colorado and the, the farm to table movement is the diversified small farm yep. that will have some colonies that they need to keep year round operations. So Colorado doesn't participate in the sort of large production agriculture like out in California. California, probably Arizona, like southern Arizona has a lot of crops. Even on, Some of those up towards apples. So the whole West Coast has pollination um, as, a, as a service all along the West Coast. Okay. You look at some citrus areas in Texas and Florida, and then even on the East Coast, you can go up and there's a lot of cranberries and, and areas in there. Mm -hmm. uh, alfalfa. So in the Dakotas, oh. even the foods that we don't eat, but our cows and our um, other livestock depend on, yeah. have honeybees out there pollinating. Really? Wow. Yeah. 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 So what the landscape looks like, really, if you, if you look at what is f producing fruit or flowers, that's where your honeybees are going to be. Okay. So um, certainly in the Dakotas, they, there's a lot of um, honey production there. That they'll take the bees after they're done pollinating in some of the California areas, go up to the Dakotas for the summertime. So they'll build up their colony strength, they'll do a lot of honey production up there, and um, you, you know, then it's kind of the circuit yet again begins every year, traveling and they have their migratory path. And yeah, there's are there, how do they travel normally, trucks? Semi-trucks. Semi-trucks. So it's just a uh, migration depending on when these farmers are ready for yeah. the pollination. Wow. Yeah, so our hope is to cut down on that transportation, yeah. to be able to have bees stay in one place maybe for a lot longer, and then to give them a much better environment, a more stable environment, um, every time they do have to go somewhere. Yeah, it's gonna 
long long term, it'll save everyone a ton of money. Yeah, that are that's in this business, any part of this business. It does. It, it's uh, we we want to become the next keystone piece. <laughs> yeah. To the system. You know, it's it it's kind of reminds me of a prior episode of this podcast, Michael Minus with Science. Oh. Science with a, starts with a C. They're uh, they're basically a marketing lead gen uh, company. Well, they have uh, built enough data points now where it doesn't matter whatever industry that one of their customers is in, uh, they can say because they have an, the amount of data points for every one dollar you spend implementing our process, it turns into X dollars of additional revenue for you. So that's kind of what you guys are building as you collect these many this many data points. You'll be able to tell, you know. Uh, your customers for every mica that you have or every you know every system every dollar you put into this you're going to be able to save x or make x and it's just going to be part of the conversation from now on that's right cool that's uh that's a big vision and very inspiring well it's something that that keeps us all going we're all really excited about the work that we do and and how this is going to grow and and become a different a different version of itself, even in the next few years. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's just such a critical topic. I mean, every I, I can I love consuming documentaries. Mm-hmm. Look at how many documentaries are being put out about the environment and our food system, and uh, just the yeah, just all of that. It's, yeah, it's and, wild. And Colorado is a wonderful place to be for that mm-hmm. because the conversation is is starting in many areas here. It's evolving here. And there's a ton of contributions that the state's making to the national conversation. That's awesome. That's yeah. good to hear. How are you guys getting the word out? I had to use the business or marketing strategy, but <laughs> <laughs> what uh, are you guys in publications? Are you going to trade shows? Like, what does that look like? Are you there yet? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, over the last several years, we've just been boots on the ground meeting beekeepers. Um, they're not the easiest folks to meet mm-hmm. because they are working hard. They're out in the fields. They don't do a lot of social media. If they're doing social media, it's probably YouTube videos with each other, yep. um, sharing tips and how to do something. They're really generous in the way that they share information. Yeah. So we've just been really trying to make relationships with good beekeepers that will teach us a lot because mm. coming from outside the industry, it's not easy. Right. It's not easy to understand how they do what they do. There's a lot of wisdom in the beekeeping community that um, they're happy to share. It's just oftentimes they're so busy working and yeah. being out in the fields that it's not easy to get um, get into that community. So we've had our own hives. We've been managing them. Chelsea has her research hives. But for industry experience, we've been fortunate to meet folks who are, who are willing to, to share their information with us. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, how long has Chelsea, Dr. Chelsea Cook, been in the industry? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So when, when she and I met, she was finishing up her Ph.D. at CU Boulder. Okay. So that was back in 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. Yeah. And then she's done a series of, she did a postdoc out in Arizona State just after completing the Ph.D. And now she is um, at Marquette University with her own honeybee lab. Oh, wow. Up in, yeah, up in Wisconsin. Cool. I went to Arizona State. Ah, okay. <laughs> Got a very different degree, but. <laughs> yeah, that is a tough beekeeping area. Is also, it? with all the heat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh, yeah. bee suits there. and summertime heat. It's tough down Awful. there. Awful. Mm-hmm. Um, how, uh, 
how, how time-consuming and like labor-intensive is beekeeping? I have no idea. Like, are they? Is this like similar to ranchers, where you're literally getting up at 4 a.m. and working till the sun is oh yeah, down and, if not even more so, because wow. a lot of the bees, when whenever you have to load bees, it's a kind of a dicey operation, as yeah, you can imagine. I can imagine. So there's yeah. a lot of preparation, and a lot of the work is done at night, and it's done when it's cool. While they're dormant and they're that's calm right. Yeah. So. Um, it's by far some of the hardest work I've ever seen. Yeah. Wow. So um, I appreciate the, all of that color on the, the, how this all came to be and, and everything. Um, let's transition to you on a personal level. I think it's fascinating that you, you, know, you come from an academic background. You've taken on this entrepreneurial, um, very entrepreneurial project. And not only that, but it's a very innovative Thing that's being pushed into an industry that has probably has had no innovation, hardly very in, little innovation in a very long time. I don't know how true that statement is, but what resistance have you come up against, and how have you guys kind of handled just staying the course and keeping the eye on the on the vision? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, before being at CU, I, I'm actually from South Texas, and yeah. so I came from a ranching background. Oh, okay. So it was kind of in my blood. That's how I grew up. Was okay. Outside, outdoors with all of uh, different animals and, and plants. So um, that was really familiar to me. When I went to see you and met a bunch of folks who were really cutting edge in terms of technology and biology, that put a different, just put a slightly different lens over everything. And so what I like to think of is just, it's ranch tech. Yeah. Ranch tech. It's ranch tech. Um, and when That's we think cool. about innovations in beekeeping, they're usually, there's a ton. Every beekeeper is super innovative. Okay. Right? Yeah. They've, I've never met a more willing to try and collaborate and, and understand this organism, the honeybee. Yeah. And so really working with them is, is just, I've, I've, I don't think I've taught a beekeeper anything. I think <laughs> it's wow. been the opposite, that they've always shared a lot more with me than I've been able to put out them. Yeah, that's very open community, helpful community then. They're super, super helpful. Cool. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's a no-nonsense area. You, you, there's no frills. It's hard work. Um, the margins are slim. It's, it's a difficult job. Mm -hmm. And so, if anything, it's brought me back to kind of understanding how to be a good steward of the land. Mm. And it's not necessarily the, the lead credits or the publications or anything like that that's going to make a difference. It really is how much on a day-to-day -day basis are you, are you taking care of things. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Oh, what a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's been a journey. It's, it's been a super interesting journey because I think in the tech world and in a lot of the investment world, it's, it's push hard, push fast, fail quickly. And I'm like, no, we can't do that. We can't fail quickly with yeah, your bees. Right. And so I think it's been, uh, that's been more of the challenge than anything else. It's just been, okay, there's an urgency to this. For financing, there's urgency. We're, you know, everybody's being encouraged to break things quickly. And I think, if anything, we've been counter to that. Mm. We're like, no, we need to move more measured and more slowly and not break things, but actually repair things bit by bit. Yeah. And so it's taken a while. As we grow this, yeah. Yeah, it's taken a while. We haven't necessarily jumped off the hockey stick like a lot of other technology companies have, or even smart sensors. 
Right, yeah, smart sensors are, are a big uh, industry. But that's uh, Internet of Things in general. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and you guys are right, at, right in that. In we are, in yeah. a strange way we are, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of ancillary to that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, how about, uh, let's dig into kind of rapid fire questions now. You guys are, has, have created this incredible technology, piece of technology. What is your favorite technology you use uh, often? It's a graphite pencil. Really? Okay. Oh yeah, like I go Spoken like a true architect. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's a pencil and a big eraser. So those, that's what I have with me all the time. I, yeah. I almost can't read a book without a pencil in my hand. Wow, underlining? Highlighting. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All of it. Drawing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there any people that have been extremely impactful in your life? Any turning points? Any like ahas coming from any anyone you consider a hero or just very impactful for you? Oh gosh. Yeah. The list is long. I think I have to just say categories. Yeah. Um, and it's mostly been teachers and um, relatives. You know. I, oddly enough, I come from my sort of genetic history is a small town in Texas called Bee House, Texas. No way. Yeah. Um, and so that community that's always been kind of a hard scrabble Texas rancher uh, life, just that lifestyle and that outlook um, and the humility that they bring, um, yeah. just caring for things, caring for uh, the land, caring for animals, caring for plants, insects, like understanding that, that we're all part of this. Yeah. So I think that's one category. And then the second has been educators, educators who have um, just been patient and always been a positive reinforcing experience in my world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's like uh, really just ties you directly to the passion that drives you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, last question, what is your superpower? Oh gosh. You probably, if you had listened to a few episodes, you probably knew that was coming. Uh, superpower. <laughs> A superpower that is not even connected to what I do with honeybees. Um, I actually like to teach dance. No way. Yeah. What so, kind of dance? Um, I do ballroom dancing, country western, swing. And so I hope my superpower, because it's a, it's a really good one, it's a beautiful one when it works, is that I can get anybody to dance. Wow. Can you get anyone to be good at dancing? Because <laughs> I could use some work. No. <laughs> oh, that's cool. What's your favorite... If you had to pick your favorite dance where you just feel like you flow uh, the best, what, what would that be? Yeah, well, so I, I don't do solo dancing, so that would not be a flow. I am not salsa or Zumba kind of uh, yeah. dancer. Um, I like uh, partner dancing where you've got a connection with somebody else and you have to constantly negotiate and have a conversation about what's going on. Yeah, and just when by you the have little a, micro movements of the body and you everything. You got it. And so when that cool. happens to a song and to... to um, out there on the dance floor, that's the best. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. Nightclub two-step. There you go. Ballroom. Ballroom, West Coast swing. Yeah. All of that's a lot of fun. My, uh, back when I was in high school or college, I think high school, uh, my mom got deep into dancing. She was out taking lessons four nights a week probably. Mm -hmm. Got very good at every dance that I could possibly think of right now. Yeah. And just had a huge passion for it. I, I'm not sure she's gone to any uh, events or classes in the last several years, but she loved it. So she, that's why I know the names of some of these. <laughs> just remember her, her journey. Yeah. So very cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on the show and teaching us more about high tech solutions. 
Well, thanks for the invitation, Matt. Thanks for your interest in what we're doing and just kind of the connection to sustainability, to um, nature and to the world outside us. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, let's talk some real estate. We'll stop recording and uh, see what we can get you. Yeah, let's find a place to find a place. Yeah. yeah. All right.